newspaper article and they had recently discovered pictures of Adolf Hitler. And what made these pictures unique was that they were in color. Uh, most pictures at the time, of course, were in black and white, but these were in color. But what struck me about these pictures wasn't the fact that they were in color versus black and white, but, but they, were, um, they were set in the context of public gatherings. And so there's Adolf Hitler always in these contexts of, of massive crowds. And, and what struck me in each of these pictures, there's only about half a dozen of them, was the, um, the straining of the faces of the people to see Hitler. And, and they had pictures of like SS guards holding people back and people were reaching out and, and their faces were looking and their bodies were leaning and they, they were hungry to, to be near this man that meant so much to them. You know, Hitler was unique in his unifying role in helping Germany out of the Depression. And they had put their hope in him. They had put their trust in him. I mean, he, he was a man that they were hooking their wagon to. And when you see the faces of the people, I mean, it's adoration. It's, well, it's really worship is what it was. It was absolute trust in this man to lead us to the place that we need to be. I mean, if you see these pictures, you just say, wow, they adored him. Well, of course, it was not more than 10 or 15 years after that <clears throat> that the, you can imagine the disappointment, the disillusionment. We hoped in this man, and look, brought national shame on our country, not just with the Holocaust, that in itself, but, but just the devastation to Europe and the millions of lives and the property damaged. I mean, they put their hope in him, and he let him down. It was a tragedy. It's still a shame on that country. Well, I, I mean, on, on a much smaller scale, you know, we place our hope in things and people that never satisfy, that, that let us down, that frustrate us. And we tend to kind of pull back and isolate and say, I'm not going to put my trust in people anymore. And, and we naively think that, well, trusting in ourselves is somehow more secure than trusting in another person. And so we kind of pull back, and, and, and we're not going to trust. Well, the reality is I don't want to disparage the nature of trust. I want to promote it today. I think, the, I think the book of Hezekiah as a whole promotes trust. It's just trust in God. Uh, the, the whole idea of Isaiah is trust in God. That's who you're to trust. Try, put all your hope, all your cares, all your fears, everything you have, everything you ever dream of, put it in God. He's the only one that can bear it. You know, we, we've seen in the first 35 chapters of Isaiah. Now, we've been bouncing around, and I've loved the book so much, I wish we did go through it chapter by chapter, but we're kind of bouncing in different sections of it to try to give you a, a whole overlay of it. But, you know, in the first 35 chapters, that's really Isaiah's ministry. People, people, people of God, trust in God, right? And there's this, been this backdrop of Assyria. Assyria, remember? They're the nation to the east, they're the superpower, the first superpower. They were a monstrous nation. They were brutal, cruel people, just consuming nations as they're moving their way along the Fertile Crescent. And, and the question was, can God really protect us from Assyria? I mean, can God really, can we really trust in him? I mean, you don't know the size of Assyria. You don't know what they did to people. They filleted people when they conquered them. I mean, I mean they were brutal. Can we really trust you, God, for this? That's what 35, the first 35 chapters... Behind the scenes, it's always, 
you know, the people of God kept trusting in other kings, they kept trusting in other gods, they kept trusting in other leaders, they kept trusting in their wealth, and they're thinking that by those things they're going to somehow avoid confronting Assyria. And Isaiah is saying, trust in God, trust in God. Well, here it all comes to a head in chapters 36 and 37. You have now Assyria comes to the gates of Jerusalem with an army of 185,000 men surrounding Jerusalem. They gobbled up all the cities of, of, of Judah. There are just a few cities left, and they're around Jerusalem. And the question is, will you trust God? Can you trust God with all these men around the city? In fact, ironically, that was the question of the Syrian commander. The Syrian commander, in chapter 36, verse 4, he says this to the, to the guards along the wall, and Hezekiah, who's the king at the time, his cabinet ministers, if you will, are along the wall. And so the man says this. He says, say to Hezekiah, don't even call him a king, say to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, on what do you rest this trust of yours? Because, because Hezekiah wasn't looking to make a deal. He was holed up in the city. I, I love these. The idea is no nation and none of the gods of these nations have been able to stand against us. Who are you trusting in? Well, Hezekiah, by the very grace of God, runs to the temple, tears his garments, and pleads with God, turning to God in trust and mercy. God, care for us. We put our trust in you. So what does God do when trust is centered in him? Sends an angel, and with a blow, 185,000 dead. He told Hezekiah, you don't need to shoot an arrow. You don't need to raise a sword. You don't need to point a spear. I'll take care of them. And he did. 185,000. Can you believe the carnage that would have come? The, the idea in this first half of Isaiah is God can be trusted. He really can be. It's good policy to trust in God alone. If you want to know what the book of Isaiah trust in God. Trust in God alone. But then we come to 38 and 39. And, and, and now Isaiah is kind of beginning to shift the book, and he's moving us to look forward. And he's going to do it by highlighting Hezekiah, who now is faltering in faith. He's faltering in faith. He's flagging in faith. And, and I think what he's going to show us is two things. Number one, how to persevere in faith. That's what I'm going to be speaking about. But he's also showing us through Hezekiah's failure, there is no human king, even godly kings. You cannot trust. You cannot root and hope and place all your trust in them. You can't do it. Hezekiah is a good king. He's a good king. He, he was a faithful king, but he was a faltering king as well. And, and Isaiah is going to point us in the second half of this book, from chapters 40 all the way to 66, there's only one ideal king, and we're going to hear about him in greater and greater clarity. So we're going to see Isaiah in 38 and 39. Specifically, I'll read out of 39 on, on the nature of persevering faith. We're going to learn from Hezekiah and his failures. You know, that's what Scripture, of course, tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, that these men and women are examples for us, and we're going to draw some from his life as we look forward to that ideal king. So turn with me, if you will, to Isaiah 39, verse 1. I'll read the entire chapter, eight verses. He says, at that time, Merodach, Baladin, the son of Baladin, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah. For he had 
he had heard that he had been sick and had recovered. Hezekiah welcomed them gladly, and he showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, and all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say? And from where did they come to you? Hezekiah said, They have come to me from a far country, from Babylon. He said, What have they seen in your house? Hezekiah answered, Well, they've seen all that is in my house. There's nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. And Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, there will be peace and security in my days. Okay, so I want to do two things here. I want to first show how God exposes the sin of Hezekiah. So we're going to see what caused him to falter in faith. And, of course, I'll draw application to that. But, but then we're going to look at how God rebukes this faltering faith of Hezekiah. So he's going to expose it, and then he's going to rebuke it. And then at the end, I'll save my, most of my application for the end of the sermon so that we can then drive it a little bit closer to our homes. But I want you to see the story in its historical context right now. So he's going to expose this faith, and then he's going to rebuke it. Okay, the exposing of the faith. Um, number one, he's showing that Hezekiah had, had grown, um, I would say, proud and self-sufficient over his wealth, his possessions, his prestige. Look in the first couple of verses here. When this king of Babylon sends a letter uh, and a present to Hezekiah, he had heard that he had been sick. That's, that story is in verse 38. He had recovered. There was a sign in the heavens, some celestial uh, happening that, that, high, that um, alerted these Babylonians to come visit him. But there was something more that we're going to find that was going on. It says, Hezekiah welcomed them gladly. And he showed them his treasure house. Now, this is kind of a this is kind of an upcharge for Hezekiah. Hezekiah is the king of a small little nation on the west end of the Fertile Crescent. He's not a big deal. Judah was a small country. It was never a player in international politics. And here, the king of Babylon is sending a letter, a letter to Hezekiah with dignitaries, princes, high-ranking officials. I mean, that is a real rush politically. I mean, to be invited on this kind of international scene with all these other politicians, it's a rush to him. I think that's the motivation, at least part of it, uh, that Hezekiah had, and then showing them everything that he had. Remember, by the way, when King Sennacherib, that is the king of Assyria, sent a letter, uh, a threatening letter, uh, Isaiah takes it, or excuse me, Hezekiah takes it right in the temple and seeks God for grace and help from Isaiah. But now he gets another letter. It's more about him, more flattering to him, more encouraging him. He doesn't take it to the temple, doesn't seek God about it, doesn't even consult Isaiah for that matter, the prophet of God. He just takes it and enjoys it. And then he shows them everything. He's showing them all that he had. Look at what he shows them. I mean, can't you imagine him just opening up door after door after door? Here are the, the treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices. Why the spices? I mean, I think that shows the level of sophistication that he had attained, that he even has uh, just storehouses of various spices from around the world. 
the spices and the oils and the whole armor and all that was found, even to his whole realm. In other words, there was a bit of parading going on, I think, in Hezekiah. He was a bit imbued with all that he had, all of his wealth. Now, there is a debate. <clears throat> I just want to touch on it because some of you know it. Uh, the chronological order of 36 and 37, 38 and 39, some scholars, in fact, many scholars think that 38 and 39 actually happened before 36 and 37. Um, because of certain datings and dates. Um, I, I want to just follow the text today. I think there is a good reason for that. Even if Isaiah did switch it, I think he's going for a theme, and the theme is uh, about persevering faith in God. So, so I'll, I'll just leave it at that. I'm going to follow the theme today. But, but I do want to address the fact that if, if, if Assyria had been sieging Jerusalem, how did he have all this stuff if if in fact it occurred in the order that the text gives us? Well, a couple of different answers I would give to you. Uh, number one, that in the slaughter of 185,000 people, there would be an amazing amount of spoil from that. Because remember now, the, the Assyrian army had been conquesting as it marches along. It acquires all the wealth of all the nations it's been consuming, and 185,000 are dead. There's a bit of spoil to pick up and carry back to Jerusalem. But not only that, it says after the battle of Assyria, after those 185,000 men, it says nations paid tribute to Hezekiah. In fact, in 2 Chronicles, we read this. He says, And many brought gifts to the Lord, to Jerusalem, and to precious things to Hezekiah, king of Judah, so that he was exalted in the sight of all the nations from that time onward. So, so that would probably account for much of the wealth that he had. But the point of it is this that he was imbued with his wealth. I think he was taken up with his possessions. And you notice that he didn't share anything about the nature of God. He didn't share anything about giving God credit and God recognition. In fact, unlike Solomon, remember when Solomon showed all of his wealth to the Queen of Sheba, what does she say? Great is the God of Solomon. You hear nothing from the envoys. Why? Because he probably said nothing. He took it. In, these, are, these are God's gifts to him, and he treats them as if they were his acquisition. And by his wisdom and his intelligence that he acquired it all. So you, you see this faltering faith because it's sitting on a bed of prosperity. It's sitting on a bed of peace and really kind of a, a, a developing pride within Hezekiah. But secondly, you see his faltering faith. God exposes this faltering faith by his making an alliance with the Babylonians. Now, why do I say that? Well, look what happens. The Babylonians send these letters and a present to Hezekiah. I'm not sure at all that in the, the politics in these days, just like the politics in our days, there's always layers of motivation. And in my, my, the thought, of course, would be that they are not coming to check on Hezekiah. They're coming to make a coalition with Hezekiah. Let me remind you, when Assyria was crushed, 185,000 died. That didn't mean the nation of Assyria was crushed. King Sennacherib, the king wouldn't die for 20 years later. So the idea is they have campaigns and military establishments all over their kingdom. And so Babylon sees a time with Hezekiah, and they see, hey, this is a major defeat for a major power. Now's the time to come together, to throw the yoke of Assyria off our shoulders. And so there's probably some degree, and I think that's why he was showing a lot of the goods of his kingdom. I'm a worthy partner with you. 
So you have this situation where Hezekiah is being pictured. The nation was looking to Hezekiah. He just had faith in God in 36 and 37. Look, now we can take over the world. No, Hezekiah is not the one to trust. He's not the one to trust. And I just want to stop here for a minute and remind you of something. It should increase your faith in the trustworthiness of the Bible that they never gloss over the Bible characters. You know that? There's no airbrushing here. There's no veneer, right? When you look at Assyria and you look at the, the kingdom of Rome, do you know in their books they would erase military losses? They didn't want people later on reading about a loss of the Roman Empire, and so they removed it from the books. You don't see that in Scripture. You see all the super saints in Scripture, the heroes, if you will, they're being portrayed as they are. <clears throat> the, 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 the Abrahams, the Moses, the Hezekiah, they're not perfect men and women. They falter in faith. So why is it that we then are so shocked when we sin against each other? Why are we so shocked when our children lie to us? As if they're not liars. All men are liars. We all lie. We're all tempted to lie. We're shading, exaggerating to protect ourselves. So why are we shocked? Now, I'm not saying let's embrace that lifestyle, but I'm saying let there be some forbearance. You know, there's a book by Paul Tripp, a book on the nature of marriage, and it's titled, What Did You Expect? It's a great title. When these young couples come together in the first year, they can't understand why they can't get along. You know, you, good questions. What did you expect? Two sinners coming together in a home? Of course we're going to have struggles. But I appreciate the Bibles not glossing over things. I don't think we should gloss over our lives either. I think we should be able, through the power of the gospel, to recognize that, you know what, we don't have it all together either. Now, I want to move on from glory to glory to glory, but I want to recognize that's who we are. And I think you see this, because the Christian faith teaches this idea that there's a conflict in the soul of man. There's faithfulness and there's faithlessness. You see it in Hezekiah's life. Listen, Hezekiah came out of the gate as a young king, and he began destroying these places of false worship. That was a bold move for a young king. He did. He destroyed them. But then also throughout his career, he kind of tended to make alliances with other pagan nations. You see Hezekiah at one point in his career, he breaks rank with Assyria. And he says, we're not going to pay you tribute anymore. It was a great move of faith. God, we're going to trust in you. Well, then the Assyrian army starts to march on him. You know what he does? He sends him 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. Why? He gets scared. He falters. You see him in chapter 38. He has this illness, and God says it's going to lead to your death. So what does he do? He turns to God in prayer by faith. But then at the same time, in his prayer, he says, it's due to my integrity that you should extend my life. And, and, and when God sends Isaiah with a poultice of figs to heal him, he says, I need a sign. So Hezekiah is a man of faith, sort of. He's like us. He really is like us in the sense that you know those days where you're yearning for greater grace. And, and then you wander so easily into sin. God feels so close and powerful. And then two weeks later, he seems so distant and far from you. He's strong as you overcome this sin. And then a week later, you succumb to the same sin. It's that struggle that is part and parcel. It's the spirit making war against the flesh and the flesh making war against the spirit. We see it in Scripture in Mark 9 when the man with the child possessed by a demon appeals to Jesus and says, would you heal my boy? He says, do you believe? He says, I do believe, but help my unbelief. Now, he's not a, I mean, he's, 
that dichotomy is in the soul of every single individual. I think about Paul. I do that which I don't want to do. I don't do that which I want to do. Who will deliver me from this body of death? I mean, Paul's not just a, I mean, schizophrenic. He's simply struggling and showing that struggle we have. But here's the grace of the gospel, that we have a Savior who bears with us. He bears with us in our struggle. I mean, what about Peter? Is Peter not a classic example for that? I mean, Peter, there he is. I'm going to do everything, and he denies. And he, he, he talks with this kind of this bold rush of faith, but then he falters it all the time. Or Thomas. Thomas says, I'm not going to believe unless I can put my hands in his, in his side. And Jesus put it in. Building faith, restoring faith, bearing with us. It's the nature of of Jesus Christ, to bear with his people. We need to bear with each other as he bears with us. So that's just a little sideline, but but God has exposed the faith, the faltering faith of Hezekiah. God has exposed it. Now listen, God does deal with it, and we see that here, because he's going to rebuke it. Look what he says in verses 3 to 8. Isaiah the prophet comes to King Hezekiah and says, what did these men say? And from where did they come to? Two simple questions. Any parent knows this. Two simple questions. What do you want? Two simple answers. So what he finds is this. They've come to me from a far country, from Babylon. Almost kind of in arrogance, they've come to me from that far country. We're a small little country. They came all that way for me. You notice he doesn't answer the first question. And he doesn't answer the first question because he's made a political alliance with Babylon. He doesn't want to tell Isaiah what they've said because what they've talked about is how they're going to form a coalition. And that would display he's not trusting in God. And so he doesn't tell him that. And so Isaiah brings a word of judgment. Now look at what he says. In verse 5 he says, Then Hezekiah said this, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Now that, folks, if it's ever said to you, which I would probably question the person saying it, but if it were to be ever said to you, that should cause your spine to numb. When a prophet of God, as confirmed as Isaiah was, to say to you a word from God for you. His other words have fallen like a sledgehammer. And so he's going to bring a judgment to Hezekiah. Look what he says. He says, Behold, days are coming when all that's in your house, all that your fathers have stored up, till this day shall be called to carry to Babylon. Nothing shall be left. And some of your own sons, who will come from you? He didn't have sons. These were going to be coming in the extension of life that he was given in chapter 38 with the 15 extra years. Whom you will father. They shall be taken away and shall be made eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Now, folks, we can't really understand the weight of this. What he's doing is he's bringing a national judgment on the people because they haven't trusted God, and he's bringing a personal judgment on Hezekiah. He's bringing a national judgment. He's saying you're going to be exiled. Everything that is of value here and the people, you're going to Babylon. The people of God that were given the word of God to be placed in the land of God, to live for the glory of God, are now being evacuated to a pagan land. They were to be the light of the world so that the nations would see the greatness of God. And you know what? They trusted in the nations, so you know what he did? He sent them to the nations. 
And he judged them. He says, you want to trust him? You're going to go be with him. And he sent them to the land. But then there's this note of, and that, that's a tragedy that they would be exiled. Much of that comes, and we'll hit this when we return to Matthew and the return of the exile, but, but the nature of the personal judgment, look at what he says to Hezekiah about his sons. His sons are going to be eunuchs. If you don't know what a eunuch is, it is a male that has been castrated so that he can work in the harems of the kings of the conquering country without giving sexual threat to the women. But the tragedy is that they would never be in the lineage of kings because they couldn't procreate, and they couldn't join in the assembly of the righteous because they were eunuchs in Deuteronomy 23.1, that they couldn't assemble. That is the tragedy of the lineage of Hezekiah. Look what Hezekiah says to it. This just shows you how far that he's fallen. It says, Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord you've spoken is good. Really? I mean, politically and publicly, maybe that sounds great, Hezekiah, but look at what Isaiah records. For he thought there will be peace and security in my days. I mean, what a tragic end to this good king. This good king, there will be peace and security. In other words, you know what? As long as my well-being is secure, I'm okay. I mean, even his sons, even his people, they're going to be subjected to this. And he's happy because he's okay. It's a tragic end. Tragic end to a good king. It's going to point us, though, to the ideal king. And the ideal king in 40, and particularly in 42, the lens is going to begin to focus on God's going to send a king that is going to be great and glorious. And he's going to be one that you can totally trust. You can hook your wagon to. You can put all your hopes, all your fears, all your dreams in this coming king. We'll see that more in a little bit. But what do we draw? Let, let me just try to make some points of application here uh, from this example of faltering faith. And the first example, I, I hope, will be clear enough. And that is, don't trust in men and women, governments, kingdoms, things. Be careful to know what you are trusting in. How do you even know what you're trusting in? Those things you're afraid to lose or, or the people that you spend the most time thinking about or the, the dreams or the goals or the ambitions that you have, those, are, those begin to highlight for you what you're trusting in. I think of the trust that we have in things, in our money, in our possessions. You know, it's downturn in the economy in 2003. A lot of people were dragging their chins along the ground. But why? Because, well, their pensions... Between 20 and 40% was the average decrease in their pensions. So that's bad news. In fact, a, a recent survey, a, um, the Center for Retirement Research at Boston College calculates a national retirement risk index, showing that the percentage of Americans in danger of growing poor in their senior years stands at 51%, up from 31%. Well, that gets people really nervous. Why? Because they're really trusting and having enough to survive, as if God, who's giving them life and breath, is not adequate. So, so we don't want to trust in things or technology, but, but clearly we don't want to trust in men or women or leaders or government. You know, you know a few weeks back I touched on the nature of, of uh, this polarization in our country with politics. I mean, we are really getting angry over politics here. And, and the, the greater the anger the greater is evidence, the hope that you have. And surprisingly, among the conservative Christians, I hear more vitriol, 
more vitriol towards the current administration. We are so much more ready to pounce than we are pray. If God is sovereign over the nations, then if in Romans 13 he appoints governments, he establishes leadership, then why do we act with such vitriol and fear? Why don't we pray? Why don't we, God, you are sovereign over the nations. That's what it means to trust in God. We don't, we don't need to throw stones. What we need to do is get on our knees and recognize, God, we're appealing to you because you direct the hearts of kings, like changing courses of waters. That's where our hope is. That doesn't mean we're anti-government. It doesn't mean that we don't involve ourselves in the nature of government. We just don't put undiscerning and unbridled trust in people. Every election, it's the same, whether you're a Republican, whether you're a Democrat. You think if your person's in the office, great, now we're going to better lands. Really? I mean, do you have to live beyond two administrations to find out it just doesn't work that way? Folks, we are the church. Regardless of who is in the White House, we know who is in the heavens. And so our trust is in him and in him alone. And we seek him. We trust him. So ask yourselves, now, what am I trusting in? What are my goals? What are my dreams? And what am I hoping in? What alliances am I making? What compromises am I making to get what I think I need? I mean, for me, let me just bring it to a pavement level real quick. For me, it always involves preaching. Who am I trusting in? Am I trusting in my, my eloquence when it happens those times? Am I trusting in that? Am I trusting in, in, in humor? I shouldn't after the last one. But am I trusting in humor? Am I trusting in, in illustrations? Am I trusting in clarity? Am I trusting that God will move his spirit to apply the words upon your soul? Or perhaps you, you're trusting in, in, in your pension or your position at work. That's what's going to secure you. That's what's going to lead you to happiness. That's what's going to bring meaning and fulfillment. If my marriage is struggling, am I trusting in a new book or am I trusting in a new, a, a new idea that we're going to have for our marriage? What are we trusting in? Because I, I think what the, what the text is showing us is we have to trust in God alone. If he can clear 185,000 threats from the front door of your kingdom, he can take care of you. Hezekiah is a classic example. He was a good king, but he faltered because he gave up in trust of God. Now, Isaiah's been already showing us these marks of an ideal king coming. In Isaiah 7, of course, we saw that child Emmanuel, God with us. So this king is going to be unique. In Isaiah 9, he's the Prince of Peace, the Almighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Wonderful Counselor. A government's going to rest upon his shoulders, and we read about that government. It's going to be a great government, a perfect government. In Isaiah 11, he's going to be the root of Jesse. The Spirit is going to fill him. He's going to know all things and be able to do all things. And then we're going to see in 42, he's going to be a servant. And this servant, he's going to be so gentle with us, he won't even break a bruised reed. If it's just that flickering little, that, that little uh, smoldering wick that's just about to go out, if you'd walk by it, your, the, the air, the drag would put it out, but he won't even extinguish that. In 53, he's going to lay down his life for us. Of course, we see in the New Testament, this is the Messiah, Jesus. That's who our trust is to be in. I mean, for the non-Christian here, you can pursue rabbit after rabbit after rabbit, and you will be disappointed. It's the proverbial ladder into the sky. The guy at the top of the rung doesn't want to tell anybody below him. There's nothing above it. There's nowhere else to go. But it's only to Christ. And for the Christian here, that's where your hope is. 
Your hope is in Jesus Christ. We sang about it. He's our only hope. Whether marital problems, whether you have cancer, whether you have uh, you know, financial struggles, whether you're looking for a different job, whether you're young and you don't like yourself, eating issues, lust issues, Christ is our only hope. He's the ideal king that we follow. So that's the first thing. Don't trust in princes. Don't trust in queens. Don't trust in governments. Okay, secondly, the faith that I'm speaking about here that will persevere, it cannot be a one-time decision. Our modern notions of faith are kind of like a, a talisman or a rabbit's foot that we pull out when we have trouble. We're going to pull it out, and we're going to really believe in God now. You know, the most non-religious people get religious when they come back from the oncologist. They get religion really fast. We're going to turn to God real quickly. And, and that's not the way faith works. Even in the church, we, we inadvertently promote this one-time decision. Believe in Jesus and you'll be saved. That is true. But that's not complete. We do believe in Jesus and we're all saved. And we keep believing in Jesus. We keep turning to the gospel. You know, your lives are going to be filled with distractions, temptations. You're going to have circumstances come into your life. That the idea of the sanctifying Christian life is that we're thinking about the gospel every day. Every day we're considering what God has done for us. We think about his glorious holiness. We think about the son that he has given to us. We consider the gospel. We want to think about the nature of faith. We want to keep trusting. You, You know, when I speak about faith and trust and belief, it's all the same word in Greek. And this idea of faith, you know, we've confused the idea of what does it mean to believe. You know, people believe, a recent survey of Americans, I love these because it really sets us out on the, on, the, on the big stage of intellectualism within the world, but 10% of Americans believe that Elvis is still alive. <laughs> I remember, I don't know if I told you this, I was driving through Austria when we were living over there, and I saw all these signs, Elvis leaped, Elvis leaped, and Leaped in, in German means lives. Elvis lives. I'm thinking, over here too? I thought it was just in America. And 50, 53% of Americans believe that in the last 100 years, aliens have visited our planet. So I'm not talking about, when I'm talking about faith, C.S. Lewis kind of says it this way. He says, um, here's the difference in faith. He says, it's easy to say you believe a rope to be strong and sound as long as you are merely using it to cord a box. But suppose you had to hang by that rope over a precipice. Wouldn't you then first discover how much you really trusted it? In other words, it's different when your life is is contingent upon it being true. That's what trust is about. And I'm speaking about trusting in Christ. Martin Luther said it this way. He said, I believe that Jesus Christ, true God, begotten of the Father from eternity, and also true man born of the Virgin Mary, is my Lord, who has redeemed me, a lost and condemned creature, purchased and delivered me from all my sins, from death and from the power of the devil, not with gold or silver, but with his holy precious blood and with his innocent suffering and death, in order that I may be wholly his own, and live under him in his kingdom, and serve him in everlasting righteousness, innocence, and blessedness, even as he is risen from the dead, lives and reigns to all eternity. This is most certainly true. This is what we believe. And this is what you think about day by day by day. It isn't something that I believed when I was 14, and now I'm good to go to live my life. It's something that I'm believing every day. In fact, Thomas Goodwin, another great Puritan, said it this way, a man does not possess Christ by faith 
in the way he possesses money in his cupboard or deeds of land, which he takes for granted that he has, and yet perhaps never looks at but once a year. No, Christ is as meat that a man feeds on, chews, and digests, whose stomach works on it continually. Faith is not a sleeping thing. It's not merely not doubting that Christ is mine, but it's a continual active wetting of my thoughts on Christ as mine. It is living on him and in him. That's the kind of faith we're talking about here. That's the kind of faith that perseveres and moves to the end. That's the kind of faith that sees few falterings. So, so, so first, when we talk about faith for you, faith, number one, is not in man, not in queens, not in kings. Faith is not a one-time decision. It's a continual way of life for us. But also, faith is threatened under subtlety more than it is adversity. Faith is always going to be threatened more in subtlety. In other words, it's when Hezekiah became rich and comfortable. Peace. That's when he began to begin to get on thin ice, if you will. It's not in adversity. Adversity, we see him rise to the, to the high levels of trusting God to wipe out this Assyrian army. C.S. Lewis in his book, Screwtape Letters, I referenced it a few weeks ago. Remember, it's a book, Screwtape is kind of a senior demon, and he's teaching his his understudy, this Wormwood, who is a, a junior demon, he's teaching him how to tempt. And, and Wormwood at one point is excited because war is coming, and war is great because people will die. And Screwtape says, no, don't be foolish. War turns men and women to God. In other words, we don't like war. Why? Because war is adverse, and war gets us thinking about things of life, which moves us to the enemy, or the enemy from the demon's position, of course, is God. So it, it, it's, it's the subtlety of comfort and ease. It's, it's when you and I grow wealthy and comfortable and, and we have lots of possessions and we begin to move towards self-confidence and self-reliance. That's where our faith is mo- most threatened. Not just wealth and possessions, but even flattery or success or accomplishments. You know, the the flattery that we receive from one another can move us towards a greater self-reliance. Now, I want to engender here in this church a culture of encouragement given, where we can see the grace of God in one another and we can encourage it. I want to do that. But I want the one who's receiving the encouragement of God to give glory to God. You know, in Psalm 115, he says, not to us, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. So we, we want to be thinking about all that we have and all that we are and give glory to God. You know, Proverbs 27, he says that silver is for the crucible and gold is for the furnace, but man is tested by his praise. That's when we really find out who we are. So so be mindful of that. Faith is threatened when you're most comfortable. Now, I don't want you to get uncomfortable. I want you just to know that so that you can be more actively engaging in the glory of Christ. What are we living for? Last week we looked at Psalm uh, Isaiah 25. Think about the home. Let's not get just too comfortable here without forgetting. No, no, no. That's what, We're pilgrims. The pilgrim doesn't stay at the inn during the journey. He's looking for the land that he's getting to. Okay, fourth, faith that survives. Persevering faith is going to be tested. God is going to test our faith. Now, I'm not saying God's going to tempt our faith. God doesn't tempt. God cannot. James chapter 1, he doesn't tempt us to sin. But he does test us, and there's a big difference here. What he does in terms of testing us is he's revealing to us what is really inside of us. Now, you see this in Hezekiah. 
You don't see it in our passage in 39, but in the parallel passage in 2 Chronicles, it says this. And so in the matter of the envoys of the princes of Babylon, who had been sent to him to inquire about the sign that had been done in the land, God, now listen to this, because I, I had not come across this and understood it. God left him to himself in order to test him to know all that was in his heart. God left him. There was some way that God pulled back a measure of grace so as for Hezekiah to see, this is what's really inside me. You know, it's like the tea bag when it gets in hot water, you find out what kind of tea it is, but it takes the heat of the water to do it. There's a testing that God does. Again, not to reveal to him as if he doesn't know, but to reveal to us. We need to know. We need to know what's in our heart. We need to know... um, You know, circumstances, when prayers aren't answered, when we face difficulties and problems, what do we turn to? What do we run for? What do we hope in? How do we pray? That begins to reveal to us what's actually inside of us. Now, folks, don't be be alarmed by that. Just let that drive you to Christ. Let that drive you to God for grace and mercy and hope. But that's part of the package, that God is sometimes stepping away from us so that what is in us comes to the surface, so we can deal with it, so we can move from glory to glory. It's a good thing for you to know now what is there and not to know then. You don't want to figure out how to rock climb when you're over the wall. You want to know before you get over the wall. Okay, and and then fifth, faith, persevering faith. Um, Forgot, Uh, let's see here is incubated in community, is incubated in community. In other words, look at the role that Isaiah played in Hezekiah's life. Isaiah was like iron sharpening iron. Isaiah was exposing Hezekiah's sin. He was reproving him. He was bringing hard words to him. Why? I think it was the grace of God. I think think when Hezekiah said to, sorry, I think when Isaiah said to Hezekiah, what did they say and where did they come from? I find that to be analogous to when God said to Adam after Adam sinned, where are you, Adam? Hey, God wasn't unaware of where Adam was. He was giving Adam a chance to repent. I think Isaiah was giving Hezekiah a chance to repent. He was bringing a hard word to a brother. And it was a difficult word. Isaiah would lose his life in the next king by doing the same thing. I mean, do you have someone in your life that can do that? Do you, are you that transparent with a person or two, that they can bring a word to you to help expose. You can't be thorough in the investigation of your own heart. Your heart's deceitful. I mean, this is why, this is the classic example. I was a great guy, I thought, until I got married. I lived by myself. Hey, I got along with myself. People got along with me. I didn't have a problem with people. I get married, and all of a sudden, I'm a monster. I'm having trouble. I'm conflicting with Carol. Why? Well, because when I'm by myself, I always give myself a passing grade. But when I'm with somebody else, then all of a sudden the real me begins to come to the fore, and it isn't always pretty. And so we need one another, is what I'm saying, that you can't persevere in the faith apart from being known by people. You can't do it. Why? Because you'll always give yourself a passing grade. But you need a bright... Now, this is a hard role to play. When you, when you have to expose the sin in someone else or you're used to ask difficult questions, people don't like that. I was thinking the other day, 
That's what makes pastoring so much fun, is that you get to ask these questions and people really don't like you a lot of the times. And I'm a really nice guy, I really am. But, but pressing people is trying to cultivate a growing faith so that when they see Christ, they're happy for you, exposing the sins in their life. But it's a hard role to play. It's not just for leadership to do. It's for us to do for one another. Do you have someone in your life that can do that? The isolated individual is not going to persevere in the faith. God has determined all those one another's need another. So you need someone. And then last, I would say this, that the persevering faith ultimately uh, ought to lead to worship. It ought to lead to worship. Persevering faith has to lead to worship. Why? Because it's God that is persevering us. It's God that is persevering us. I want you to know that he who began a good work in you will complete it. That's where our hope is. God is beautiful at, rec- at rescuing our faith. He's always rescuing our faith. That Jesus is the author and the perfecter of our faith. That this is, at the end of the day, this is bedrock for me. This is foundation. We can do all the applications that I took, but at the end of the day, that our faith rests in the hands of God. He must persevere, and he promises to do so. He promises to complete that work that he has started. It may be completed through trials and adversity and through testing and through other brothers and sisters in the faith, but he's going to bring about a beautiful faith. And when we see him, we're going to boast in him, not in what we've done. So at the end of the day, persevering faith still comes back to resting on God. So let's take a few minutes, and I would like to pray, and I'd like to give thanks to God for this ideal king that he sent to us, these examples that he's given to us. I'm going to open us in prayer. I would ask you to pray corporately. That means that we're praying, thinking about the church as a whole, and and to pray faithfully that we believe that God inclines his ears to us as we move towards him. And I would ask you to pray loudly so that we can hear you and affirm with you on that prayer. And then I would ask you to pray briefly. And what I mean is, is pray shorter prayers. And why do I say that? Well, I say that only so that other people can pray. And, uh, and then uh, David's going to close us in prayer.